All right, well, I've been looking forward to completing uh, the second part of this teaching on the Wisdom Pyramid. Yeah, last month we had the Meat Fest, so that kind of substitute. That was our men's meeting last month was the Meat Fest, but there was no teaching with it. So it's been since October since we've gotten to talk about this. And I think I've said this before. Typically, when it comes to sermons on Friday nights, Chad and I are most comfortable working through passages of the Bible. We like to do expository preaching. But when it comes to men's meetings and things like this, we, we generally like to do topical kinds of things. And when we do topical kinds of things, we're uh, reaching into wisdom and passing that on. And so this is related to that. Um, I think I'd mentioned that I came across a book called The Wisdom Pyramid by a guy named Brett McCracken. And the book itself was fine. I just really liked the concept of, you know, working off the old food pyramid where your base is where you should have the most and then as you work toward the top the least. I like the concept and I, I think wisdom pyramid is fine. I think of it a little bit more as an input pyramid. I think of it as the inputs that we have in our lives. Um, my main concern is what we do as far as bringing things into our consciousness. And um, the inputs that we intentionally seek out, but also the inputs that we just kind of passively receive into our awareness. Um, there's always something going on every moment that we're awake. And so Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There is always something going on when we're awake. We're always taking stuff in through our eyes. We're always taking stuff in through our ears. There's constant input. And some of it we intentionally seek out, but some of it just kind of passively washes over us. And so the question I want us to consider is, when you have the freedom to choose what you pay attention to, what do you choose? When you have the freedom to pay attention to something, what is it that you choose? You know, sometimes your choice is made for you. If you're a student and you're sitting in class, you're paying attention to the teacher. That's, that's what you should be paying attention to. But when you, when you can make the choice for yourself of how you're going to focus your attention, what is it that you give your attention to? And these inputs might be ways in which we seek out wisdom, but they may just way, be ways that we pass time. Um, regardless, what we take into our consciousness forms us for good or for ill. What we bring into our awareness has a shaping and forming effect on us. And that's something that we need to be aware of. So I want to revisit the pyramid, not just thinking about where we go to find wisdom, but also thinking about the inputs that we intentionally or passively bring into our lives. Make sense? All right. So uh, last time we talked about, I only talked about the Bible and church. I'm going to revisit those just very briefly before moving on to the other ones. And so with Bible, unfortunately, I inadvertently created some confusion two months ago. Uh, and so I want to I pick back up there. Um, when I was talking about making the Bible the base layer of our pyramid, I talked about reading the Bible in big chunks. So reading all of Matthew in one sitting or reading half of Genesis or, or something like that. And I compared it to reading the Bible in small chunks. Uh, reading small chunks of scripture over several days. So maybe reading um, you know, Matthew 5, reading the Sermon on the Mount over a two-week period instead of in one sitting. And I think that made folks think about the St. James reader that a lot of us use. 
And it made people wonder if I was saying that we should move on from the St. James reader in order to just focus on large chunks of Scripture. And so that was an inadvertent mess up on my part. I was not trying to compare the two and say that reading big chunks is better and that we shouldn't do the St. James reader. Uh, The way I put it to the guys in the home group was when it comes to reading the Bible, there is no wrong way to eat a Reese's. There is no wrong way to go about that. Whether you want to read in big chunks, whether you want to take something in smaller chunks over several days, like a slow drip, whether you want to meditate on one verse for seven days in a row. If you're coming at it with a good heart and open ears, and you really want to press into God through the Word, you're fine. There is no wrong way to eat a Reese's as far as that goes. You're opening yourself up to God's vision and direction, and that's the first input that we should seek in our lives. Um, The Bible is the input that measures all of the other inputs. And so we want to make that the base layer. If it's not the base, if you're not regularly making time to place yourself before God through His Word, then we are going to be formed in worldly modes because we're going to be formed either way. And we're going to be formed in worldly modes if we're not making the Bible our primary base of input. Okay? Does that make sense? Does that clear up any confusion from two months ago? Could you say that line again? The Bible is the primary input? And it's... it's the input that measures all of the other inputs. Yeah. And by that, do you just mean like if there's 100%, it measures because it's the bulk of the percent? Or what do you mean by measure? No, I think I'd say... Um, so if we think about books, books can be good inputs, but if they are contradictory to the word, then they kind of they fall outside what should be a shaping and forming influence for us. Chet. And I would just add, we want our theology to be shaped by the Bible, not yeah. our theology shaping the Bible. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, yeah. that's the great, I think, the great truth of the Protestant Reformation is notice that we need the Bible to be the thing that judges our theology. But it's really tempting to get your theology and then go look for, looking for it in the Bible rather than constantly right. testing it against the Bible. Yeah. And that's why church, you know, church is measured by the Bible. Uh, we don't measure the Bible by the church. Yeah. Romans 12, 2, familiar to all of us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And there's, there's a lot more to say about this as, as the Bible is the base. Um, and that's why Chad and I have talked about devoting most, if not all, of the next year's men's meetings to the Bible specifically. How to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, the Bible's symbolic world, and, and just a, a deep dive into the Bible itself, uh, next year's men's meetings. So that we could have new eyes and new ears to interpret all of life biblically. Okay, so that's the Bible. Um, just a quick refresher on church and some things I said last time. Again, what, when I think about what makes TCF distinctive, if people ask me what, what makes TCF different from other churches, um, I think it's, it's that we practice relational discipleship. We have, we have a heavy emphasis on relational discipleship, life on life together, seeking God, um, being Jesus' students in his school of life together, not, not just solo, but doing this together. Um, I need you to help me grow in Christ-likeness. You need me to help you grow in Christ-likeness. And we need others to help us together grow in Christ-likeness. Nobody is an island off by themselves. 
And a lot of the time this comes from just being around each other a lot. And so I talked two months ago about the church calendar. There's a lot on it. We have home groups. We have our Friday night meeting. We have this men's meeting for Saturday every month. We have other smaller discipleship meetings that take place. And so this is a good thing. This is life on life. This is how we grow together as students of Jesus in his school of life. I said last time, too, that our church is a lot like a small town. And in a small town, everybody knows everybody. And everybody knows everybody's business. I mean, sometimes it, there's, uh, sometimes it's hard to outgrow how people see you because of, of how they knew you from before in a small town. Um, there's a country song called What Happens in a Small Town Stays in a Small Town. And it's true. Sometimes, sometimes it can be hard to outgrow your reputation. But when we talk about... Uh, when we talk about church, we talk about life together. And life together as if like in a small town. A life that's more than just attending the Friday night meeting. A life that's even more than just being in a home group together. But it's belonging to each other as we grow as Jesus' disciples together. There's a real sense of, of mutual walking together in growth and belonging to each other. And so the time that we spend together is a powerful input that shapes us for good, that shapes us in this direction of being Jesus' disciples. Okay, so we talked about those first two the last time. <clears throat> the third one is creation. I think last time when I, when I drew this diagram, I had nature. Um, I, I like creation better. Chad talked about this a little bit last night in the sermon. Um, Creation is a more biblical term than just nature itself. So by this, I mean the created world, the good world that God created. And, you know, most of us work in buildings and most of us live in, in homes that we are comfortable being in and that we like to be in. Unlike generations of farmers and hunters and gatherers before us, we have to make an intentional effort to spend time outside. We have to make the decision to do that because, again, for a lot of us, we're indoors most of the time. And we have to make intentional decisions to let the natural world, God's good creative world, be an input for us for a space of time. We have to intentionally make that decision. But it's well worth it when we do make that decision to let the good creative world be an input into our lives. This could be taking long walks. It could be sitting outside in a scenic place. And when we do this, something gets communicated to us about God's sufficiency and care for our lives that can't be communicated in any other way. And this is, uh, again, a very familiar verse, but from Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We might take it for granted that stress over food and clothing and shelter is just a built-in part of life, that that's just everyday experiences to be stressed about those things and to be worried about those things. Jesus says, no, it's not. 
That's not a built-in part of life. That's a learned behavior. And if you spend time looking at creation, we can see how God's care for creation informs us about God's care for our own lives. And that's something that we pick up through being observant about God's good creation. Another example, Proverbs 6, 6 6-11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, considering her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And so meditating upon an ant reveals something about God's created world, about the way that God has made things, and that's that all of God's creatures participate in their own survival. It's not entirely up to us, as Jesus just said in the example about the birds, but the sluggard can't stay in bed all day and expect to survive. The sluggard has to do something, has to participate in his own survival. Otherwise, poverty will come upon him like a robber and want like an armed man. This is not poverty as in just doing without some things as not having enough. Robbers and armed men are violent, and so this is the kind of poverty that kills. And again, this is something that can be picked up and discerned from the created world that God has made. And there are all kinds of examples in Scripture. I think of Psalm 8, you know, when I look at the stars, when I look at the heavens, um, what, is it, what is man that you have made him? These are all throughout Scripture. And lastly, in thinking about creation as an input, one of the best inputs that we can intentionally seek is silence. Seeking silence. Silence is an input that takes aim at our default setting that we always need stimulation that we always need to be listening to something, doing something. Silence takes aim at that. But again, it's something that has to be intentionally sought because we don't live in a world with much silence in it. I don't know about you. Um, Do you always have to be listening to music or a podcast when you're driving somewhere or when you're taking a walk or running or something like that? Is it difficult? for you to be in silence, to have nothing going on around you. Um, I'm almost always listening to something in the car, an audiobook, podcast, music, something like that. But sometimes I do sense a real need to just have nothing going on and just to receive the input of silence. And, you know, most of us don't naturally seek this out, but uh, we will be formed in Christ-likeness if we withdraw in solitude and head into God's natural world and content ourselves with silence. Does that make sense? You're all silent. <laughs> okay, fourth, fourth layer is books. Um, I thought this was pretty cool. During the afternoon session of the Mars Hill Forum, when we, we were in here in this gym with Peter Lightheart, and we had a session for educators, and Chad was doing an interview with Lightheart And Chad asked him, um, I don't remember the exact question, but he asked if Christians should be readers. And if so, how should Christians think about being readers? What kinds of things should they read? And Lightheart said, above all, one should be thoroughly immersed in the scriptures. Above anything else, a Christian should be thoroughly immersed in the Bible. 
And if you're a devoted student of the scriptures and you don't read much beside that, that is absolutely okay. And so Layhart was, was very insistent, wanted to make the point that, that we, should, we should have the Bible as that primary base. Um, that said, well, and I believe that's true. In, in one of Leihart's books, he wrote a book about the pagan classics where he uh, walks through the Iliad, the Odyssey, and some of the others. Um, and he says in that, he says, the least genealogy in the book of Chronicles is of more value than any of the greatest works in all of literature because it's God's word and, and the other books are not. They may, they may have some inspiration, but the Bible is uniquely God's inspired word. And so the least genealogy in all of Chronicles outweighs all the rest of great literature. Now that said, there are great novels, there's great poetry, there's great short fiction and great nonfiction that is out there that can help us be formed in Christ-likeness. Um, and great literature allows you to learn beyond your own life. Great literature allows you to learn beyond your own life, your own experience. You only live once, so it's good to accumulate a lot of other lives into your experiential database. And you can do that through literature. It lets you do it. And it lets you do it in a pretty harmless way. Um, so if you're, if you're a father, you might sometimes, in a fit of weakness, in a fit of neediness, um, try to curry affirmation or affection from your kids and try to get your kids to tell you how much they love you and to affirm your goodness as a dad, okay? Out of, out of weakness and neediness. Well, if you read Shakespeare's King Lear, you'll never do that again. <laughs> you'll never do that again because the whole tragedy of King Lear comes from his neediness and his weakness in trying to um, have his daughters dote on him and tell him what a wonderful father he is and how much they love him. That sets into motion all the tragic elements of the play. You read that, you'll never want to act out a neediness again toward your kids. <clears throat> Does anybody, raise your hand if you've ever read anything by Flannery O'Connor. Okay, if you, if you read almost any of Flannery O'Connor's short stories, the main character in the short story tends to be blind about their own failings about their own weaknesses. And it usually takes a very bad turn of events for them, for them to finally see this blind spot that has been there for them, that everybody else sees, but that they haven't been able to see. And so the effect of reading a Flannery O'Connor short story is that you're reading and you're like, man, they are so blind. How did they not see this? And everybody else sees it. And, and it only takes the tragic ending for them to finally see it. And then I start to wonder, well, what is it about me that... I'm blind to, and maybe everybody else sees, and, and I'm just not seeing it. And is it going to take a bad turn for me ultimately to see that? That's the effect of reading a Flannery O'Connor short story. I highly recommend it if you, can, uh, um, if you can stomach some of the really bad endings for some of the characters. So, um, so that literature can do this kind of thing. But books give us more than just negative examples and things to avoid. Some novelists are very gifted at creating compelling protagonists, compelling heroes of the story. And this is a lot harder to do than you would think. A lot of times heroes are not written very well. Uh, they're not very believable. 
But there are some novelists that are very good at it. Um, C.S. Lewis said that writing the screw tape letters in which there's an elder demon giving advice to a junior devil, uh, he said really that was kind of easy because as a sinful man, he could trace the logic of sin. He knew how sin worked and he could just trace the logic of it. Uh, I think his publisher came up with the idea for him to write a sequel where there was an elder angel corresponding with a younger angel. And Lewis said, yeah, I just can't do that. <laughs> I, I don't think that purely. Um, I, I don't think I can attain to that. And so not all writers are good at depicting goodness in a really compelling way. Lewis's friend Charles Williams was very good at it. There's a contemporary writer named Mark Helprin who's very good at it. And I think Wendell Berry is very good at it. If you've ever read any of Wendell Berry's short fiction about, or novels, about uh, his fictional town of Port William, he is good at depicting goodness. Um, in his novels and short stories about Port William, he gives a really compelling picture of small town life that's anchored in neighborliness, friendship, fidelity, working together and suffering together in lives that span decades together. You see the long haul of relationship. And when I read his book, Jaber Crow, for the first time in, in 2016, I got done with that book and I bought all of Barry's other books about Port William. I wanted to read them all. Because the more I read about Port William, the more I loved our church. The more I could see what Barry was writing about in the relationships in our church, neighborliness, fidelity, working together, suffering together over a long period of time. And uh, the ways of life that were expressed in that book really, I thought, matched the ways of life expressed in TCF. And it made me want to be more faithful. It made me want to be more available. It made me want to be more invested in long-term relationships and more invested in the health of our community. That's what good literature can do. It can inspire us uh, in these other dimensions of our lives. There, there's another book um, by a woman named Karen Swallow Pryor called On Reading Well, in which she devotes every chapter to one of the virtues. So the four cardinal virtues that we talk about in men's meaning, but also the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and then some other ones. And she, she attaches a novel or a short story to each of those virtues. And so you can see how that virtue or its counter that it's vice is in play in that particular work of literature. And, and that's very helpful for seeing how we can be formed through books. It's a powerful thing that they can do. Uh, the fifth level then is, is beauty, which is um, thinking about art and music and our own culture making and thinking of making beautiful things. I'm not gonna go into great depth there because I wanna spend some time on, on the very top part. Which is, which is the web. And so, you know, should you never be on the web just because it's at the top part of the pyramid? No, um, that, that's not the point of it. But proportionately, we tend to make the web the source of our inputs far more than any of the other five levels below. It tends to be the primary source of much of our input over the course of the day, over the course of the week, and, and over the course of a year. It's, it just becomes a default habit for most of us to pick up our phone, to go to the internet. And when not occupied with something, that's, that's quite often what we do. Again, where do you turn your attention when you have the freedom to turn your attention to something? Unfortunately, a lot of times, it's just grabbing our phone. Um, 
you know, it's the top of the pyramid. It's, it's analogous to like the Funyuns and ice cream of the food pyramid. Uh, it's okay once in a while, but it should not, you can't make a, a primary diet of Funyuns and ice cream and, and remain healthy. You, you could do it for a little bit, but you would not remain healthy. And probably the biggest reason why the web should be an infrequent input, this is one, there are probably many arguments for this, but this is the particular one that I want to make today. Um, it teaches us that we can have whatever we want whenever we want it. The web teaches that, forms us in that, that we can have whatever we want whenever we want it. Um, when we want to know something, you can ask Siri or you can head to Google. I mean, how often is it in our experience that, you know, you'll fumble for a name or a year or something and then just out comes the phone and we look it up, right? We can do that because it's there. You never not have to know these things. Uh, when we get an impulse to buy a book, we head right to Amazon, put it in the order. You know, three minutes after conceiving the idea to get the book, it can already be in the works to be shipped to your house. And so the web teaches me that the world caters to me. The world caters to me, or that it should cater to me. None of the other inputs teach me this. None of the other inputs validate that the world should cater to me. The Bible doesn't. I come under the Word and receive the Word on its own terms. The Word is not there for me to manipulate to say what I want it to say. I come under the Word and receive it on its terms. The church doesn't cater to me. I've tried. <laughs> The church doesn't cater to me. It doesn't cater to any one of us. Creation certainly does not cater to me. Books might cater to me, but only if I already agreed with the author. The really good, challenging books don't cater to me. They don't cater to my selfishness, and they challenge my imagination. And that which is truly beautiful rests securely in its own beauty and does not need my approval. So it does not cater to me. But the web caters to my interest in what is new, in what I can consume in the way that I want to consume it, and I don't need anybody else to enjoy it. I can enjoy the web entirely on my own. I don't need anybody else to enjoy it. So it caters to my interest in what's new, into consuming it the way I want to, and my own isolation or, or indifference to anybody else being a part of it. This is why a guy uh, named Samuel Wells just came out with a book. I have not read it, but he just came out with a book called Digital Liturgies. And he says that the web is, quote, intrinsically pornographically shaped. Intrinsically pornographically shaped. Not that there is a lot of, not just that there's a lot of that on the web, which unfortunately there is, but that the chief characteristics or pornography, which are novelty, consumption, and isolation. That's the engine that drives the web. Say those three. Uh, novelty, consumption, and isolation. Those are the characteristics of pornography, and they are the engine that drives the web. That you can always be finding what's new, you can consume it in the way that you want to, and you don't need anybody else to enjoy it. Um, again, I've not read that book by Samuel Wells, but I did read a review of it by Jeff Bilbro, friend of the Mars Hill Forum, or one of our 2022 speakers, who reviewed the book uh, pretty favorably, and is particularly favorably with this insight about how, the inter about how the web is shaped, about how it's shaped in that way. And so that should make us ask, okay, if that's the way that the web is shaped, if that's true, 
then what is getting reinforced in me when I go there? What's getting reinforced in me? It's not so much that I might go to a bad place there. That's always a hazard, a possibility, and that would be bad for sure. But I might never visit such sites and still have it reinforced to me that the world caters to me or should cater to me. And it, and it can still reinforce uh, an intense desire for novelty, for consumption, the way I want to consume things, and for isolation. Does that make sense? Even if I never go to those places, it could still reinforce those malforming things in me. And that's just a monster that grows within. If that's my perspective, that I should always have things new, I should always be able to consume it the way I want to, and I don't need other people, that's not going to just be my online habits and my online viewpoint. That's going to transfer to how I think about my family. It's going to think about how I think about my wife, how I think about the church, how I think about my job that everything should cater to me and make me happy. Um, now, it would be less bad and less hazardous if we had to always go to a room and sit down and access the internet, right? When I was in college, you had to know somebody who had a modem and you had to call in <laughs> through the modem and make that awful shrill noise and then you could check your email. And that was about all we could do when I was in college was check your email. Um, but we have this forming input all the time with us, most of us. We have this forming input in our pockets, always at the ready. And for many of us, a default habit to just pull out, usually as a reflex for boredom. And it's made me, it's made me think, uh, recently, like, okay, what is on there that I really think I could not do without at this point? Like, what's become such a habit that I'm not sure I could do without it? So I think about, I, I like podcasts, I like music, I run those things through my phone. Okay, well, is there, would there be another way to do that? Or would I maybe just do without those things in the usual ways that I use them, like in the car or while running or things like that? Um, I think about GPS. And, and I am heavily reliant on GPS. I would have to try to figure out some other way to do that. Um, and just looking at the different apps, okay, do I really need this? Is, this? is this important or is it just another excuse to pull out the phone? So you know what that's like for you in your own particular habits. But I think it's good for us to, to, to look at these critically and to say, okay, is there anything that I think I couldn't do without and, and then challenge that. Would there be a way to do without it? You know, what would I, what would I really lose if I didn't do that? Uh, and then, you know, talking with others, like, you know, this is, uh, this is something that is a bit of a, uh, a weight on me that I, I need this thing. Um, so just a question to consider with that is, when you, whenever, you're, whenever you pick up your phone, what, probably out of reflex, to just ask yourself the question, is there another input right now that would be better for me? Sometimes you have to pick it up because somebody texted you, it dinged, and, and you, know, you want to respond to that. A lot of times, though, it really is just a habit out of there's nothing else going on. And so asking the question, is there another input right now that would be better for me? That an hour from now I could look back 
And it was better that I did this other thing than just picked up my phone and did the Daily Wordle or uh, checked ESPN for the latest on whatever. A lot of that stuff is what's called ephemera. Ephemera is stuff that's just short-lived. It, it, it has its cultural moment and it passes on. But ephemera forms us too. And if we're greatly formed by ephemera, then we're essentially being formed into something that passes and has no real consequence, no real substance to it. Does that make sense? So I think the value of, of this pyramid, again, it's not like thinking, okay, well, I gotta make sure I spend more time in creation than books, and I gotta make sure that I spend more time in books than beauty. It's not, uh, it's not a ranking kind of thing, forced ranking kind of thing. It's just, it's something to keep before us. What are the inputs that I have in my life? What am I intentionally seeking out? What's just passively washing over me? And how can I, how can I put some intention behind what comes into my consciousness and what forms my spirit? All right, questions?